Brian Koberger gets a victory over the prosecution. Serial killer Rebecca Auburn appears for advisement on charges. A neighbor dispute turns into an execution. Remember the young man who assaulted a teacher for taking away his video game? Well, he's appeared in court. Uh, let's not do this um, on Halloween. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. Yes, it is October 31st, Halloween 2023. All right, you know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't, like if you do, leave me a comment below, hit that little bell for notifications, and hit that little bell, ladies and gentlemen. Why? Because the evil people at YouTube gave us a content strike almost three months ago, and they have all but taken us out of the algorithm. So please hit that little bell for notifications. All right. Now, let's go ahead and get to the docket and open the record for October 31st. That's right, Halloween 2023. And at the end of the show, we'll announce our winners for the best costumes. All right, first on the docket, Brian Koberger gets a win over the prosecution. Now, when I say win, the defense won a motion. And if you were to go back and look at our previous episodes when we talked about the defense wanting what they get in this particular case, I said, give it to them. And I told you, my old boss in the military was always, I'll give the defense whatever they want, and we're still going to win. I don't understand why the prosecution was hiding this. And let's take a look at it. Now, like we've done in lots of important cases and rulings that have come down in cases, we've gone directly to the court's order. Now, this is a very lengthy order, but I have tried to cut it down as much as possible, but I think it gives a good factual uh, outline. It creates or develops the issue, it develops the law, and then the conclusion as to why the judge made the ruling. Now, at the end of the day, is it gonna make a hill of beans at trial? I don't know, but the defense should have been entitled to it, and I'm not sure why the prosecution denied it. When the prosecution doesn't turn over stuff that's important to a case, well, it looks like you're hiding something. All right, let's go ahead and get to it. So this uh, order uh, was released uh, just uh, this morning as it relates to uh, the Brian Koberger case. And the court uh, states in its introduction, on November 13th, 2022, four University of Idaho students were found murdered. As part of law enforcement's investigation into the homicide, the FBI employed the use of investigative genetic genealogy known as IgG, using DNA located on a K-bar knife sheath found at the crime scene. Through the IgG process, the FBI constructed a family tree of individuals whose DNA matched with the DNA found on the knife sheath. The FBI then sent local law enforcement a tip to investigate defendant Brian Koberger. Koberger was arrested on December 30th, 2022, and charged with four counts of murder in the first degree and one count of burglary. Nothing about law enforcement's use of IgG was used to obtain the arrest warrant for Koberger or to obtain the search warrant for his DNA. The state filed a motion to prevent the disclosure of the IgG information to the defense. The defense opposes the motion and filed a motion to compel, requesting discovery of everything pertaining to the IgG investigation, including the family tree built by the FBI. Now, disclosure of information gathered from the IgG investigation is an issue of first impression in Idaho. That just simply means there's no case law to guide the court as it relates to this particular issue from either the legislature by way of statute, rules, 
or from higher appellate courts in Idaho saying this is the issue. So it's an issue of first impression. Now the state claims that the IG information was not used to obtain any warrant and will not be used at trial. The court finds that the defense is likely entitled to see at least some of the information from the IgG investigation, even if it may ultimately be found to have no relevance to Koberger's defense. However, because the court has not seen exactly what information pertaining to the use of the IgG is available, the court cannot say precisely what should and what should not be disclosed at this time. Because of this uncertainty, the court grants the state's request for an in-camera review of the IgG information. After such review, the court will enter the appropriate discovery and protective orders. So basically what they're saying is, the court is saying is, hey, prosecution, you may not like it. It may not be admissible, but that doesn't mean it's not discoverable. And the court's saying, I don't even know exactly what it is. It may be completely irrelevant. That's why I'm going to do an in-camera review, which is a fam fancy word for simply saying the court is going to look at this, decide what is relevant, and then turn it over to the defense, and there'll be a protective order. Another fancy word for you can't give this to anybody else. We've seen this recently in the Delphi case. You turn over information that's subject to a protective order, you could get in trouble. So the court goes on further here and states in its kind of analysis here, on November 13th, 2022, four University of Idaho students, Kaylee Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, Zaina Kernodal, and Ethan Chopin, Chapin were found deceased in Gonsalves, Mogan's, and Kernodal's off-campus home on King Road in Moscow, Idaho. The cause of death for each was ruled a homicide. Law enforcement discovered a tan leather sheath laying on the bed next to Mogan. The Idaho State Lab was, had located a single source of male DNA, the suspect profile, left on the button snap of the knife sheath. Now, once law enforcement had single source DNA from the K-Bar's knife sheath, they conducted what is called short tandem repeat STR analysis. An STR DNA analysis involves looking at 20 regions within human DNA and allows law enforcement to make a direct comparison between two STR DNA profiles. Law enforcement submitted the STR DNA profiles obtained from the K-Bar knife sheath to the Combined DNA Index System, also known as CODIS, a database of STR DNA profiles from convicted offenders, arrestees, and crime scene evidence to identify the source of the DNA. No match was found. Law enforcement continued to investigate the homicides and uh, video canvases in the area of the King Road residence uh, that were conducted into the investigation. The video canvas revealed a white sedan that piqued the interest of investigators. The video footage was provided to a forensic examiner with the FBI who initially identified the sedan as a 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra, but later indicated it could be a 2011 to 2016 Hyundai Elantra. Law enforcement agencies were on the lookout for the Hyundai Elantra in the area. A 2015 white Elantra registered to defendant Brian Koberger was located in Pullman, Washington. Law enforcement determined that Koberger's physical description matched that given to investigators by a surviving roommate of the victims and that Koberger's cell phone travel was consistent with that of the white Elantra in the early morning hours of November 13th. Based on this information, law enforcement believed Koberger to be the driver of the white Elantra that was seen on the video surveillance around the King Road residence at the time of the homicides. Law enforcement also obtained cell phone records indicating 
that prior to the homicides, Koberger's cell phone had utilized cellular resources that provided coverage to the area of 1122 King Road on at least 12 occasions prior to November 13th of 2022. On December 27th, 2022, Pennsylvania agents recovered the trash from the Koberger family residence located in Albright, Pennsylvania. That evidence was sent to the Idaho State Lab for testing. On December 28th, 2022, the State Lab reported that a DNA profile obtained from the trash and the DNA profile obtained from the sheath identified a male as not being excluded as the biological father of the suspect profile. On December 30th, 2022, Koberger was arrested and charged with four counts of murder. A search warrant for Koberger's DNA was issued on January 5th, 2023. A traditional STR DNA comparison was done between the STR profile found on the K-bar sheath and the defendant's DNA. The comparison showed a statistical match. Specifically, the STR profile is at least 5.37 octillion times more likely to be seen if defendant is the source than if an unrelated individual randomly selected from the general population is the source. Then the litigation ensues. Now, law enforcement use of IgG to find a lead after the STR DNA profile from the knife sheaf did not return a match in CODIS. It is unknown to this court when exactly law enforcement employed the use of IgG. Now, a brief discussion of what IgG entails is necessary to better understand the significance or insignificance of its use in this case. Consumer genetics has exploded, driven by the second most popular hobby in the United States, genealogy. This hobby has been co-opted by law enforcement to solve cold cases by linking crime scene DNA with the DNA of a suspect's relatives, which is contained in a direct-to-consumer DTC genetic database. The relative's genetic data acts as a silent witness or genetic informant, wordlessly guiding law enforcement to a handful of potential suspects. Driven mostly by genealogical hobbyists, the majority of the DTC ancestry genetic testing services rely on single nucleotide polymorphism, or SNPs, which are mutations at the level of the individual. SMP data can reveal whether users share segments of this genome with other users' relatedness through a common ancestor. This works by analyzing the percentage of the overlapping bits of genetic code, so-called identical by descent, sections that one shares with relatives. Assuming no historical inbreeding, one likely shares roughly 12% of their genome with first cousins, about 3% with second cousins, and less than 1% with third cousins. Thus, by finding and quantifying overlapping genetic regions, DTC companies can predict genetic familial relationships. The leading consumer genetic companies, 23andMe and Ancestry, allow consumers to download their raw genetic data in plain form text, which can then be uploaded to third-party websites. Up to 62% of DTC consumers will upload their genetic data to third-party websites for free or for a small fee. One such third-party website is GED Match, an open access service that is free for most basic searches. GED Match users can connect with even more distant relatives who used different testing services like Family Tree DNA or MyHeritage. They do so by uploading their SMP profile generated elsewhere on GED Match. 
the raw SNP data is analyzed using a simple algorithm, and the site then produces a list of likely relatives automatically without the need to share any underlying genetic information with the putative relative. In just a few years, GED Match has cultivated a large community of hundreds of thousands of users. Because the identity of the person from whom the crime scene sample came in is often unknown, law enforcement uses a false name, John Doe, for example. Then when their John Doe matches someone in the database, they use genealogical data to determine a common ancestor who might be a great-grandfather or great-grandmother. They then triangulate other data, such as birth, voting, and military records to build out the pedigrees from the common ancestor, identifying all of the potential individuals who may be suspects. As we each have about 1,000 fourth cousins and 5,000 fifth cousins, depending on the degree of the relation, this process can be quite time-consuming. The methodology is known by different names. In the forensic genetic research community, it is referred to as long-range familial searches or LRFS. Long, law enforcement sometimes refers to this as forensic genetic genealogy. The use of these databases like GED Match does not necessarily lead to a single individual as a potential suspect. Once they have this DNA, then they upload the SMP data. Rather, it would identify possible relatives who might be in the database. And once a putative relative has been identified, a family tree is created, working backwards to grandparents and possible great-great-grandparents. The family tree is then built down. The construction of these family trees is highly subjective and is based on the use of public records such as marriage and birth certificates. In some instances, contacting individuals for further family information like out-of-wedlock births, name changes, or adoption. This process leads to a pool of individuals rather than one specific individual. The state describes the law enforcement use of IgG in this case as follows. Investigators used IgG to begin the process of developing a lead to the individual who left DNA on the K-bar knife sheath. The Idaho State Police utilized a private laboratory to develop an SNP, the singular nucleotide polymorphism, profile from the DNA on the K-bar knife sheath. The private laboratory started using genetic genealogy to develop a family tree, but after law enforcement decided the FBI would take over, the private laboratory ceased its efforts and sent the NSP profile to the FBI. The FBI uploaded the SNP profile to one or more publicly available genetic genealogy services to identify possible family members of the suspect based upon the shared genetic DNA. The FBI went to work on building the family tree of the genetic relatives of the suspect DNA left at the crime scene in an attempt to identify the contributor of the unknown DNA. The FBI built the family tree using the same tools and methods used by members of the public who wish to learn more about their ancestors. The FBI consulted social media, viewed vital records such as birth and death certificates, and viewed other information already contained in the user portal for the genetic genealogy service, including unverified information submitted by other users of the genetic genealogy service. The FBI also consulted subscription-based databases available to law enforcement for information on individual people. The product of the genealogy conducted by the FBI was a family tree that contained the name, birth date, and death date of hundreds of relatives, as well as the familial connections between each other and the suspect, Brian Koberger. The FBI then sent the local law enforcement a tip 
to investigate the defendant. The IGGG process, the IGG process pointed law enforcement toward defendant, but it did not provide law enforcement with substantive guilt or evidence. The FBI did not, for example, conduct a direct comparison between the SNP profile from the K-bar sheath and the defendant's SNP profile. That type of direct comparison required more traditional STR DNA analysis, which was conducted by the Idaho State Police, not the FBI. So we get into litigation and the state wishes to protect and not disclose to the defense the raw data related to the SNP profile and the underlying laboratory documentation related to the development of the profile, such as the chain of custody forms, laboratory standard operating procedures, analyst notes, etc., as well as the all information related to the IgG efforts in creating a family tree and identifying potential relatives, including the identities of the Genetic Genealogy Service and the personally identified information of the defense relatives. Now, while the FBI no longer has access to view much of the information it used to create the family tree, the state acknowledges that the FBI does possess the family tree itself, notes jotted down by the FBI agents as they constructed the family tree, and any records created to document the removal of the SMP profile from the Genetic Genealogy Service pursuant to the DOJ policy. And the DOJ policy required that Koberger's SNP DNA profile be removed from the genetic genealogical services. Well, in support of the motion to compel that the defense had filed, and in opposition to the state's motion for protective order, the defense submitted the declaration of Ann Taylor, a declaration of Bicca Barlow, and the declaration of Stephen B. Mercer, and an affidavit of Lee Larkin, and the declarations of Gabriella Vargas. The court noted this is obviously a case of first impression, but they were able to find three opinions that suggested the discovery of such information uh, was, in fact, appropriate. They cited to a uh, case called State v. Bortree, B-O-R-T-R-E-E. There was also another case called State v. Burns and a case called In the Matter of Michael Green. It's no need in going through all those necessary opinions, but the court considered that since this was a case of first impression and goes through a little bit of the analysis. And it says in the the Hartman case that they also mentioned, it says on appeal, Hartman asserted that he had a reasonable expectation of privacy in the segments of his DNA that he had in common with relatives that those relatives voluntarily uploaded to GED match. The Court of Appeals stated without the GED match analysis, there would not have been a later warrant for Hartman's DNA, just as there was not for the preceding three decades. It is undisputed that Hartman, in this particular case that they're discussing, never supplied a DNA sample voluntarily to any source. Thus, if the trial court had concluded the GED match investigation was unconstitutional, it would have inevitably suppressed the other DNA evidence as the fruit of the poisonous tree. In sum, if Hartman succeed in his challenge to the GED match comparison, the later DNA comparison of Hartman's DNA to the crime scene DNA would also be excluded because they would not have occurred absent the alleged constitutional violation. But the court says, guess what? You have no expectation of privacy in common DNA that a relatives have voluntarily uploaded. I think that's somewhat significant as the court continues. Well, the state also says that, hey, this information, it's not discoverable. The defense says, hey, this information falls within the ambit of the Rule 16 disclosures and that Koberger has a right to discover and question and investigate what led to 
his arrest. The court noted the family tree built by the FBI merely pointed law enforcement to defendant, and law enforcement followed the lead to develop a substantive evidence of guilt that was used for his arrest, and that would be used at trial. The state contends that the only relevant DNA evidence is the DNA found on the sheet and the DNA taken directly from Koberger because those DNA profiles can be directly compared and, according to the state, matched. The defense argues that the IgG information sought is material to the preparation of the defense because the defense must have an opportunity to challenge how the IgG profile was created and how many other people the FBI chose to ignore during the investigation. The possibility of other relatives who might be similar to Mr. Koberger is extremely important to the defense in this case. The process used in this method of identification may be extremely important to Mr. Koberger's defense. The timing and steps utilized are extremely important to Mr. Koberger's case, investigation, and defense. And the defense team has discussed the use of statistics in this type of case with experts who have informed the defense that the manner of identifying Mr. Koberger via this type of search may have significant impacts on the statistical analysis of the CODIS profile generated by the Idaho State Police Lab. Without access to the actual genetic genealogy search methods and results, it is impossible for their experts to address these issues. The court goes on and says Koberger has presented enough evidence to meet the low threshold required to show that at least some of the IgG information sought is material to the preparation of the defense. First, the defense presented the declaration of Bicca Barlow, as well as a testimony from Barlow on August 18th of 2023 and stated their opinions it is imperative to the defense in this case to know how Mr. Koberger was identified and who else in the family tree might have been identified as a subject of investigation. It is unknown to the defense in this case whether every lead or possible suspect was further investigated and ruled out by genetic testing. It may not be possible for any defendant to investigate family relatives who are unknown to him and may in fact have been in the area at the crime. Essentially, the defense would like to know whose DNA matched the suspect SNP DNA profile uploaded to the Genetic Genealogy Service and who else was then identified on the family tree. The defense could then investigate who shares DNA with Koberger to determine if these individuals were around the King Road residence at the time of the murder and if law enforcement obtained these individuals' DNA and tested it against the DNA found on the knife sheath. The defense seeks this information to determine whether Koberger was or is the sole suspect. Next, Barlow asserted that the IgG search can impact the statistical rarity of a profile in a manner similar to a cold hit search, meaning that the statistic that is generated by the analysis of the IgG search could yield a relevant and admissible statistic. Goes on. Uh, that the expert Mercer testified that an SNP profile can shed light on the reliability of an STR profile, but first one needs to know how the SNP profile was obtained, the lab process, the family tree, and who on the family tree was not tested for STR purposes. Essentially, according to Barlow and Mercer, the SNP profile and the information gathered from it can be used to attack the rarity and reliability of the STR profile, which the state will present at trial. This information would potentially challenge the state's statistic based on the STR analysis, and the comparison between Koberger's DNA and the DNA on the knife sheaf showed a statistical match. 
Specifically, the SDR profile is at least 5.37 octillion times more likely to be seen if defendant is the source than if the unrelated individual randomly selected from the general population is the source. The court also notes it is plausible that Koberger may use the IgG information obtained in discovery to challenge the admissibility of other evidence. While such a challenge seems futile since the IgG information was not used to obtain the search warrant of Koberger's DNA and will not be presented at trial by the state, the court cannot say with certainty that the defense team cannot make a successful challenge if given the information they seek. At least some of the IgG information the defense requests bears some abstract logical relationship to the issue in this case, and based on the defense experts and the limited case law on the use of IgG, there is some indication that the pretrial disclosure of the undisputed evidence would enable the defense significantly to alter the quantum of proof in his favor. The court cannot say that the material sought will play an important role in uncovering admissible evidence, aiding witness preparation, corroborating testimony, or assisting impeachment or rebuttal. For these reasons, Koberger has met the low threshold required to at least show that the IgG information is material to the preparation of the defense. There's further discussion about Rule 16. And then the court addresses the argument that the state says that, hey, this is not in our possession. This is in the possession of the FBI. And this court notes that the state argued in its reply that the information is in possession of the FBI and not in possession of the prosecuting attorney. The court says, mm, yeah, not so fast. The Idaho Supreme Court recently held that if law enforcement agency is involved in the prosecution of a defendant, then that agency's records, which are material to the defendant's guilt or innocence, are effectively within the possession, custody, or control of the prosecutor. While the prosecutor is not required to comb the files of every agency the prosecutor possession, custody, or control of the evidence may be presumed if the agency participates in the investigation of the defendant or the investigating police agency holding relevant material evidence acts as an arm of the prosecution for the purpose of the criminal discovery statutes. The court notes here, the FBI was working in conjunction with the police department and the Idaho State Police to investigate the homicides. From the court's understanding, the FBI set up a public tip line, conducted the IgG analysis, identified the suspect's car as the 2011 through 2016 Hyundai Elantra, and possibly aided in interviewing witnesses outside of Idaho. The FBI was indeed a law enforcement agency acting as the arm of the prosecution to investigate the case. Thus, the records pertaining to its work on this case are records within the possession, custody, or control of the prosecution for purposes of discovery. That almost seems so obvious, but it just shows you in litigation, people take sometimes unrealistic positions simply to argue to do lawyer stuff. So the court finally concludes that uh, Koberger has made the requisite showing that at least some of the sought after evidence is one material to the preparation of the defense. And that encompasses results or reports, scientific tests or experiments made in connection with this case, which may include reports of memorandum that were made by a police officer or investigator in connection with the investigation. And finally, that it may be of substantial need in the preparation of the defendant's case. The state's argument the IgG investigation is wholly irrelevant since it was not used in obtaining any warrants and will not be used as trial is well supported. Nonetheless, Koberger is entitled to view at least some of the IgG information in preparing his defense 
even if it may ultimately be found to be irrelevant. In balancing these interests, the court will conduct an in-camera review, all the IgG information, and in the possession and custody and control of the state, including the FBI to determine precisely what needs to be disclosed and what does not need to be disclosed. I know that was long, but I think it's important to hit the key points and not just summarize generally, at least until you hear all the information. So what does it mean? All the IgG information is gonna be turned over to the judge. The judge is gonna look at it, see what's relevant, decide what the defense gets. That's all. And the judge is saying, hey, you know, the defense has made a couple of good arguments here. One, it's certainly in the care, custody, and control of the uh, state, so they should have turned it over. Why were you delaying it? And to make kind of a frivolous argument, well, the FBI is not within our control. We're just a little old prosecution office here. <laughs> they were involved in the investigation. They have to turn it over. It makes you wonder why they don't want to do it and why they haven't done it to this point. This is why I don't get it. The government just needs to turn everything over. I've said it before. It creates doubt. It creates speculation of something nefarious going on. And finally, the judge says, hey, the way this is all created may change all these statistical numbers that the state's throwing around that, man, you know, Brian Koberger is 5.37 octillion times uh, the guy that's just some excluded guy walking down the street. So, or some random guy going down the street, I should say. So that's what it is. Is it a win for Brian Koberger? Yes, because the prosecution didn't get their way. Shows the judge being completely fair, very intellectually honest in his analysis and his opinion. Does it mean it's coming in at trial? Not necessarily, unless the defense is gonna be able to show, hey, you know what? Brian Koberger has this brother <laughs> that was unbeknownst to him that lived in the same area that drives a very similar car, uh, that his DNA could be the fact of on the knife sheath button. Kind of a stretch, but the defense is at least allowed to explore that possibility. And guess what? If the experts for the defense go through this and find there's nothing there, we're never gonna hear from these experts again. That's called the truth-seeking process, ladies and gentlemen. And we need it, it's good, and it protects everybody. Next on the docket. An Ohio woman accused of killing four men with lethal doses of fentanyl in order to rob them has pled not guilty to murder. Rebecca Auburn entered her plea alongside her attorney in court yesterday. Now, the suspected serial killer could have more victims, according to authorities, warning that their investigation is ongoing. Now, uh, Auburn of uh, Columbus, Ohio, is charged with killing four men and nearly killing a fifth man after she met up with them for sex. The murders allegedly occurred between December 2nd of 2022 through June of 2023, but the victims have not yet publicly been identified. Now, Auburn has been charged with four counts um, of involuntary manslaughter, five counts of aggravated robbery, five counts of felonious assault, five counts of corrupting another with drugs, and one count of tampering with evidence and four counts of trafficking in drugs. The first attempted overdose of a victim is said to have occurred back in December 13th, but that guy survived. Four other victims died from overdoses uh, on January 15th, April 1st, April 13th, and June 16th. Now, we brought you the story the other day. The Ohio Attorney General, Dave Yost, shared news of this indictment, and he said, don't buy sex in Ohio. 
It ruins lives, and it could cost you yours. He believes that uh, Auburn meets the criteria of a serial killer because of the four deaths she's accused of follow a similar pattern. He said, if you've got somebody that has a series of killing that are separate in time, they're a serial killer. We have the same MO here. Anyway, Auburn admitted to detectives back in March that she did in fact put fentanyl in a man's uh, crack pipe and that uh, she knew he was overdosing when she left the hotel room and uh, took his car and uh, credit card. Now, obviously he is deceased, so I guess he was authorized it. And then you have no duty to aid, I guess, right? I don't know. No, wrong. She should have helped. Anyway, the investigation remains open, according to the Attorney General's office, and they are focusing in other activities in the Northwest Columbus area between December of last year and August of 2023. Now, Auburn, who has at least one child and had a daughter who apparently died in 2016 at just 18 days old, has no prior criminal history whatsoever. All right, next on the docket. Um, yeah, a neighbor disputes turns into an execution. So I'm not sure we can show you all the video, but maybe we can show you some s snapshots of it. But, but there's video that shows a moment that a neighbor executed a father and his stepson in what appears to be cold-blooded killing in a Brooklyn apartment hallway during an argument over noise on Sunday night. Now, the video opens with a man dressed in all black pacing angrily outside his upstairs neighbor's apartment on the fourth floor. A woman emerges from the apartment and exchanges words with the neighbor. A short time later, she is joined by her son and identified by the police as Chin Wei Mode. The video has no audio, so it's unknown what is being said during this uh, conversation. A few moments later, Mode's stepfather and a uh, guy, a bus driver named Bladimy, B-L-A-D-I-M-Y, Mithurian, M-A-T-H-U-R-I-N, marches out of the apartment, brandishing a pair of scissors and angrily confronts the neighbor with the gun. Mithurian spots the gun and waves it off. He turns around and begins walking towards the apartment, at which point the neighbor opens fire and strikes him and he falls to the floor. Mode or Modi, who is also in the hallway, tries to get away from the gunman, but the neighbor fires multiple shots at him, including at least twice after he collapsed in a pool of his own blood next to the stairway. The neighbor then returns to the father, and uh, who's still alive and struggling to get up, and shoots him execution style on his own doorstep. Now, having killed the two men, the neighbor calmly walks uh, to the uh, uh, elevator and gets on the elevator and heads out the building and flees. Now the police have identified him, but they have not yet publicly named him because he is still on the lam. Now there were nine 45 caliber shell casings and five bullet fragments that were recovered from the hallway. Neighbor disputes, ladies and gentlemen, worst type of cases ever. They always escalate, always. Won't get involved in them. Next, remember this young gentleman or punk as we should say, who brutally attacked a teacher for trying to take away his video game? Well, he's been back in court. That's right. The boy accused of punching and kicking his teacher assistant is in a big trouble over the Nintendo Switch, has appeared in court, and he's been charged as an adult. Brendan Deppa is 18, but was 17 at the time of the alleged beating, was in court on Monday to face charges of aggravated battery, which is a felony. Now, he allegedly, although we got the video, so it's pretty certain that he did it, attacked his teaching assistant, Joan Nadich, at the uh, high school where she taught. 
The assault was caught on the school surveillance cameras. Now, the six foot, six inch, 270 pound student was caught viciously beating the mother of two until she was unconscious. And uh, she can be seen in the video knocking Nadich to the ground before pounding her unconscious at least 15 times in the back of the head with his feet and fists. Now, if convicted of aggravated uh, battery at a school board official in uh, Florida can face up to 30 years in prison for the first degree felony. The minimum sentence is three years. Now, this young man pled no contest to the charges against him, which is treated as a guilty plea. I don't know why states even allow no contest anymore. saying, I'm not saying I did, I'm not saying I didn't, but I'll accept the consequences that come with it. Most judges say, no, plead guilty or not guilty. We'll go to trial. Anyways, Depa will be sentenced at the end of January. His own lawyer sought to have him declared incompetent to stand trial because they claim that he's autistic. Uh, the court-appointed psychologist found that Depa was, in fact, competent to stand trial, and the judge will decide his fate early next year. The judge could sentence uh, the young man either as an adult or as a juvenile offender. Now, Depa's family had hoped to minimize and eliminate prison time altogether, instead focusing on probation and treatment for the young man. But the prosecutions appeared unwilling to negotiate, and Nadich, the victim, also showed little interest in any mitigation that was presented by the uh, Depa uh, family as well. Now, Depa had been charged with battery at least three times back in 2019 before his attack in this particular case, and he's previously completed a Department of Juvenile Justice uh, program as well. Hmm. Let me know. Juvenile? Adult. Need to keep the young man off the street? Or, you know, he's a kid, his brain's not fully developed, and we should, should we let him go? Let me know in the comments. All right, get off my lawn, you kids. Yeah, let's not do this on Halloween, okay? A man in New York has been arrested over the weekend for allegedly pointing a gun at a six-year-old after he saw the boy retrieving a candy-filled Halloween goodie bag that he had mistakenly left on the man's front porch. So Michael Wen uh, was taken into custody Saturday evening and charged with one count of second-degree menacing and one count of endangering a welfare of a child. So apparently the mom was taking the kids to drop off a Halloween goodie bag for a friend. They weren't sure they got the right address, so the child approached the house. Well, the man opened the door and put a gun to the child's head. Needless to say, he's been arrested, and Mr. Wen's attorney um, has stated that the incident was just a big misunderstanding. When his client realized it was a child on his porch, he regretted his actions immediately. And finally, our dumb criminal of the day. So the police uh, were flagged down about a guy in a banana costume the other day relieving himself on the side of a building across from a row of porta-potties in Key West, uh, Florida. Well, the police spotted the young man, later identified as Kyle Mortimer, 20. Sure, he was just drinking lots of Gatorade, right? And he was, in fact, urinating on the sidewalk. And Mortimer attends the University of Miami. So... He fled toward Duval Street after officers identified themselves. And while Mortimer was zigzagging to uh, prevent capture, a second cop grabbed him by the uh, peel. And Mortimer then twisted and pulled away before the officers used a leg sweep to knock him to the ground. Even then, Mortimer interlaced his fingers and held them tightly together, trying to prevent being handcuffed. 
Well, after his arrest at about 1.20 a.m. in front of the Smokin' Tuna Saloon, Mortimer was walked by police to a nearby City Hall where he was charged with disorderly conduct, resisting arrest. They're all misdemeanors, and he's scheduled for an arraignment on November 16th. Yes, Mr. Mortimer, you are our dumb criminal of the day. Yes, when you're wearing the banana costume, I get it, it's Halloween, but you're underage. It's probably easy to spot you. And, and by the way, this is one of my pet peeves um, of all time uh, because I have some restaurants and nothing irritates me more than when somebody is outside peeing in the parking lot. And I've literally gone up to people and said, hey, would you like it if I went up on your lawn and peed on your lawn or maybe came into your house and didn't go to the restroom but peed in your living room? They said, well, of course not. I'm like, well, why are you peeing in the parking lot? Just no respect for other people's property. It's disgusting as well. Anyway, at least he's not asking for people to join him in a threesome with his horses like the guy yesterday. All right, now that brings us to announcing the winner of the 2023 Crime Talk Halloween Costume Award. All right, our first winner of many contestants in the Patreon group, Catherine Gross. Congratulations. We'll contact you and send you $100. And then the winner in the subscriber contest, once again, this is probably the toughest decision I've had to make ever. And I've had to make lots of tough decisions. But I think we're going to give it to R.C. Caravella. There you go. Our winner in the subscriber contest. We appreciate everybody participating. Not everybody could be the winner. I wish I could. Great contestants, everyone that sent in pictures. Thank you for participating. Um, Try again next year. All right. That's all we have for you today. It is Halloween, so we're not going to do our live tonight. So go out and get lots of candy to give to the kids. And if you got little kids, take them out early before it gets too cold. And be safe. All right. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time on Crime Talk. Thank you.